If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. You can read along on the screen. I encourage you to pull out a Bible and, and read along as well. We're continuing our series on the book of Exodus. So beginning with chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirst there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with, staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Father, we pray that you would take this word, that you would embed it into our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might be changed, that we might be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, challenged where we need to be challenged, that the Spirit of God would do his work in us for our good and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find here that the children of Israel are testing the Lord. Um, what does it mean to test the Lord? Well, we'd start with by saying whatever it means is not a good thing to test God Almighty, right? Um, I was in high school and ran cross country. We did a, a cross country retreat. Uh, yes, there are cross-country retreats. What do you do at a cross-country retreat? You run. And we were in South Carolina, uh, in the lowlands, the flatlands, and we were out uh, running for uh, a week, over a week's period of time. And in the summer, we went out, and I was down one of these dirt roads. I was about five miles out from uh, being back at our place where we were staying. And just like in Florida, a, a thunderstorm came up in the middle of the afternoon, and it was, uh, it was scary. There was lightning, thunderbolts crashing literally on, on both sides of the road, and there was no place to go. There was only flat land, there, were no, uh, there, was, there was nothing, so all I could do was just run as fast as I could till I got back to safety, and uh, praise God, I'm here to speak about it today. I lived through it. And I was uh, at my church uh, relating this to people just in conversation. And a woman about the age of my mom said to me, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Okay, that's the King James version of this concept. Thou shalt not test the Lord your God. Thou shalt not tempt. And, um, 
it took me back a little bit. And uh, essentially what she was saying, that that, that means that uh, taking unnecessary chances, uh, putting the Lord to the test, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be taking those chances. I didn't explain to her that uh, the thing cropped up. I didn't go out in the middle of a thunderstorm and I had no place to hide, but in any case, I understood what she was saying. Well, is that what it is to to tempt or to test the Lord, just to do something kind of crazy and expect the Lord to come through? Well, the good news is that this particular account in Exodus 17, Meribah and Massa, is uh, repeated and is referred to over and over and over again throughout the Old and New Testament. So we've got... Uh, the Bible itself is a commentary on this particular passage, and it helps us to understand what it means to tempt the Lord. There are three things that we learn about the meaning of tempting the Lord. Number one, testing the Lord equals making a demand on him. They tested, this is Psalm 78, verses 18 through 20, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they crave. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock, so the water gushed out, and streams overflowed. Testing God is demanding something of God. God, you must give me food. You must give me water. You must give me a house. You must give me a specific kind of house, or a car, or a specific kind of car. You must give me health. You must give me health or give my loved one health. Now, let me remind you of what we talked about last week, that it is entirely appropriate as we go through crisis to call out to the Lord, uh, to to go to him, to pour out our heart, uh, to pray to him, uh, to cry. And, And that should be reinforced here as we talk about testing. Testing is something different than that. Um, I heard just this week that there is uh, a sort of worship service that is done in some areas called um, Eutucharist. I don't know if you've heard of Eutucharists. That is, they take songs from the the band U2 and they have a Eucharistic worship service using those songs like I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For and other songs. Now, uh, I wouldn't encourage you to go to one of those services. Uh, Most of those songs are not really pointedly uh, praising the Lord. Uh, Actually, they do have some that are pure scripture, like Psalm 40. But in any case, uh, Sarah Dillon Brewer uh, said, who founded a worship service called the Eutucharist, um, that I... incorporates songs like I still haven't found what I'm looking for. She says it works because it's an expression of both spiritual joy and disappointment. A lot of contemporary music that's written for worship in Christian circles can be kind of relentlessly, I totally love God with all my being and everything is going to be great. Well, what I'd encourage her to see, and that can be true, uh, the Christian life is not all happy clappy. We have our difficulties, and there's actually quite a bit of um, help and encouragement in some of the traditional hymns that deal with uh, laments 
in crying out, in mourning um, as well. So there are some contemporary songs that do that well. And there are times when we need to express joy. But the point is that, yes, it is appropriate to cry out to the Lord in our need and even in our worship uh, to ask that God would hear us. Uh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And yet, um, testing the Lord is different. It's demanding. It could be simple, simple as something like, I demand that you give me respect, that the people around me give me the respect that I'm owed. And God, if they don't give me the respect that I'm owed, uh, then that's a sign um, that you're just not with me. Um, you know, it's said by athletes at times, if you can do it, it's not bragging. Well, we think of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Philippians 2, 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So even Jesus Christ himself did not demand that he receive what was due to him. God, you must provide me with fill in the blank. That's testing. Secondly, testing is requiring proof from God. Psalm 95.9, related to this passage, says, When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Demanding proof of what? We see that in our text in Exodus 17.7. They tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Prove that you're present with us, God. They tested the Lord in this way. Give us water that you're among us. And so it might be heal my child, fix my home, make my business solvent. When I lived in Chattanooga, a business owner who was starting a new business uh, called me and asked me if I would come at the grand opening to bless his business. I had never been asked to do that before. I did it. I prayed God's blessing on the business, and they went bankrupt. So, uh, was God not with us when we were praying? Must God answer our prayers? Do we demand proof in this way? You did not answer my prayer for healing, so this must mean you are not present. You have abandoned me. So the logic of testing goes. You did not answer my prayer for financial turnaround, for the type of job I wanted. I did not get the move I wanted when I wanted it. We prayed that God would spare us from the hurricane. He didn't. Is the Lord among us or not? That's what demanding proof is. Demanding proof of the presence of the Lord. Jesus Christ had an encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They came to him, as recorded in Matthew 16, 1, to test him. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And and Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Thirdly, testing is putting God on trial. God, you must testify. You must testify in your defense. The word quarrel that we find recorded in Exodus chapter 17, verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses 
And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Is a different word than the word that we uh, looked at last week, the word, word grumble. Quarrel, in some ways, is a stronger word. And uh, at times it can take on the connotations that we normally mean in terms of quarreling and contending and that sort of thing. And we see that in Genesis chapter 13, verse 7. The same Hebrew word is used. And there was strife, there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And this happened oftentimes over land. It happened oftentimes, interestingly enough, over water, as it did in this particular instance. Um, but the word uh, rib or ribe that we see here in the Hebrew, in fact, you find that embedded in the word meribah, rib, uh, is the word for quarrel. And that word in the Hebrew can also have legal connotations. We see that in Exodus chapter 23, verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit, in his quarreling, in his rib. Okay, that's the same word. And so it appears that the quarreling by the people against Moses and ultimately against God is either a legal charge or sort of a quasi-legal charge that Moses was concerned that he was about to receive the death penalty at the hands of the Israelites. C.S. Lewis has written a book entitled, uh, it's actually published, uh, a series of essays. One was entitled God in the Dock. Um, God in the Dock, when I talk about God in the Dock, I'm not talking about what we think of here in Panama City, you know, like bring your boat up to the dock. The dock was a place, and particularly in British law, where a defendant would be in a place in the courtroom reserved for that defendant. And so God in the dock, C.S. Lewis is essentially saying that we can put God to the test, that we can say, God, you must testify. You must testify to whether or not you are with us and I'm demanding it of you. How does the defendant wish to present any proof for his presence among us? And this is testing. And it's an, it's an expression of a hard heart. Psalm 95, 8 and 9 says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when you put me to the test and put me to the proof that you had seen my work. So what should the Israelites' attitude have been at this point in the wilderness as they were needing water? Well, you know, the Israelites had seen all the miracles of God and how God delivered them from Egypt, the various plagues to the Egyptians, the going through the Red Sea miraculously, the defeating of the Egyptians by, uh, the, by God's miraculous, again, defeat of them. And then he provided water for them. And then last week we found out he provided food and bread for them. And so at the, I kind of have given the Israelites a little, um, a little personal leeway at this point, right? But I think at this point, no more. You know, you have uh, Uncle, Uncle Sid comes to visit the Israelites here. 
And uh, he, says, uh, he says to somebody, hey, you know, what are you going to do? You, you don't have any water. And so uh, you go, hey, let's go to the front of the tent and let's just sit and wait and watch because this is going to be spectacular. And he said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, well, back in Egypt, you should have seen all the miracles that God did to deliver us. I mean, he turned the Nile River to blood and he, all of these frogs and gnats and he did boils on the animals and on the, you know, all of these people were, all of these were targeted to the Egyptians. And then and we left Egypt and we were hemmed in by the Red Sea and the army was coming against us and we thought this was it. And then God parted the Red Sea for us miraculously and we walked through on dry, dry land and the Egyptians followed us and God covered up the Red Sea, covered them up with the Red Sea and defeated them for us. And then when we were thirsty, he gave us water and then he gave us quail and he gave us manna. And somebody said, well, how's he going to do it? I don't know. But it, I, I can guarantee you, we don't know how he's going to do it, but he is going to do it. Let's watch and see. That's what their attitude should have been at this point. Instead, instead of believing that God would provide, their heart was hard. Now, who in the book of Exodus has been described as having a hard heart? Pharaoh. The Israelites were more like Pharaoh than anybody else. And what does it mean to have a hard heart? What does it mean that you demand? Pharaoh demanded it was not enough. Every single miracle that God did, Pharaoh said, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. His heart was harder and harder and harder. And the Israelites were saying, what you did in the miracles in Egypt were not enough. What you did at the crossing of the Red Sea is not enough. What you did in making the bitter water sweet is not enough. What you have done in providing quail and bread is not enough. You have not done enough. They demanded more proof from God. And so how do we soften our hearts? How do we avoid testing God? We remember. We think back. What, what's God done for us in the past? I mentioned we had three meetings this week related to raising the money necessary to fund our rebuilding. Um, two of those meetings are related to encouraging generosity within and outside our congregation. And then uh, we talked to this development company about uh, the contract and the, the changes. And uh, so we have these, these ways that we're moving forward in order to partially meet the needs for our rebuilding. And somebody asked me this week, uh, I mean, can we do it? Is it, is it realistic? And I uh, sat down and I wrote out the estimated costs and I wrote out these are some ways that we could do it. And I said, yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's definitely a step of faith, right? Um, no guarantees, but it's possible. And it made me think as I was preparing for the sermon about how God has provided in my experience in the past. I spent 15 years in campus ministry where I was a campus minister and I raised support for my ministry. 
and particularly the last years at Covenant College were particularly difficult where I would, I would go, my account would go into deficit uh, several times a year and, and I wondered, is God going to provide? And uh, at the end of the year, I wondered, you know, am I going to be in a deficit? And um, there were no guarantees. I mean, I worked hard and, and tried to let people know about our ministry and what we were doing and what the need was. But every year, God provided Prior to that, I was working at First Presbyterian Church of Chattanooga, and the first year I was there, actually within the first couple of months, I saw the, um, the first financials of the church, and the church was running a deficit well in excess of $100,000. And um, I think this was probably September, maybe, and, um, and so I was concerned, and I went to the administrator of the church, and I said... Um, you know, what's the deal here? Should I be looking for another job? Uh, is the church going to be able to make it? And he said, oh, we got somebody in our church at the end of the year, December, whatever our deficit is, he just strokes a check. A month later, that person was dead. We were doing his funeral. What happened in December with our deficit? The Lord provided the Lord is not dependent on any person. And so we look back, and, and frankly, I'm always nervous. You know, I, I pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I was nervous in, in campus ministry. I was always nervous. You know, Lord, are you going to do this? And uh, Moving forward in faith. Um, and, uh, and my anxiousness is a sin. It's a lack of faith. Uh, but the more I look and remember at what God has done the more my heart is softened, not hardened, and the less I'm tempted to test the Lord. He is present with us. Meribah is a cautionary tale. I mentioned that it was throughout the Bible we find uh, this account of Meribah, and, and it is a cautionary tale throughout the Bible. It's in the book of Psalms in multiple places, in the book of Hebrews, it's actually mentioned three separate times in the book of Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians. And we read earlier today the account in 1 Corinthians, and I'll refer back to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So immediately, one word of note uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to both Jews and Gentiles, and he says, Our fathers were all under the cloud. We sometimes refer to the Israelites in the Old Testament as the church in its infancy. There is a connection that we have, uh, even prior to the time of Christ, that links us with the people of God in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10:2. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There again, there's a connection. There is a baptismal connection that connects the people in the Old Testament to the people in the New Testament. They were baptized as part of God's covenant community. A couple of uh, uh, passing comments, um, and that is all of the community was baptized into Moses, believers and their children. And in addition to that, uh, some of our Baptist brothers will challenge us in terms of our mode of baptism, and they'll say that baptizo, the 
Greek word in the New Testament must mean immersion under all circumstances in the New Testament. And I would just simply offer this observation that the only people that were immersed in this particular baptism were the Egyptians. So, but I digress, and let's move forward. Uh, So the important point, though, is that we are connected in no uncertain terms. The Apostle Paul is saying that we can gain understanding and insight from the way in which God dealt with them and the way God deals with us and the way that we respond to God as well. 1 Corinthians 10.3, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Very interesting. The time that the Apostle Paul was writing, the rabbinic teaching, uh, uh, some of the rabbis taught that the rock followed the Israelites in the desert. You know, how did they receive water throughout their desert wanderings? Well, one, one way of thinking, one way of teaching was the rock actually followed them. Uh, another teaching was that they were actually able to pick up the rock and that the rock was portable. And so they had portable water. And I would encourage you as you seek to understand scripture and fill in the gaps, not to do that. Uh, we simply say that the Lord had a way of providing and he's revealing to us certain things that we need to know. And yet it's interesting. The Apostle Paul uh, picks up on this general idea to say that Christ was with them, the spiritual rock. The rock was Christ and he followed them in the desert. In Exodus chapter 17, who is associated with that rock? God is. Yahweh is. Exodus 17, verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Yahweh, God, was the rock. Paul says that Jesus, God incarnate, Christ, was the rock that they drank from. This is a type of a typology. Jesus Christ was the rock, was a type of Christ. But yet, Christ was present, bringing salvation To thirsty Israelites, God is our rock, Christ is our rock. Jesus Christ said to a thirsty woman at a well in Samaria, he said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus also said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Have you tasted of the water, the water of life? 
the water of life presented to you in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ that that you, by rights, deserve the punishment, but that Jesus took the punishment. He received the blows on the rock, but with his stripes we are healed. With his punishment, our punishment is removed. With his perfect life lived, it's counted to us as righteousness as we simply place our faith and trust and transfer our trust from ourselves to Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that as we believe in Jesus, the Spirit of God is living in us. Is God present with us? He's present with us as a body. He's present with us in the church. And He's present in each of us through His Spirit. He is with us. God's Spirit in you. 1 Corinthians 10.6 Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Only two adults that were at this particular event made it into the promised land. Now, does that mean that we can lose our salvation? If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that's given you a new heart. We sang of that, actually, in a hymn today. I don't know if you caught that. He's given us eyes to see and ears to hear. and He's changed our hearts, and we respond with faith and with repentance. And so He justifies us on the basis of that faith. He's not going to unjustify us and remove uh, his spirit and put a hard heart back in us again. Um, But the reality is that within the children of Israel and within the body of Christ, there are those that do not really place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's a warning. There's a warning not to test the Lord. There's a warning to instead trust the Lord. And there's a warning for us who do truly believe in the Lord that are tempted at times to test him not to do so. Uh, Just uh, yesterday I heard about the news of Josh Josh Harris who uh, wrote uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It was a very popular book, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago. And he has now said that he is no longer a Christian. He has kissed Christ goodbye. Um, He, uh, a popular author and a pastor in a church, um, has, uh, has disavowed faith in Jesus Christ. So the point is this. We need this warning from Scripture. We need this encouragement. And this encouragement is to remember. To remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember that you have tasted the Lord, that He is good. That He has done all kinds of good things in your life. And first and foremost, He's given you the Spirit of God. He's given you eternal life. He's given you His presence. He's given you a hope even as you go through the difficulties and challenges. For we find that Meribah is not only a cautionary tale, it is an encouragement. Psalm 105, 41. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. If... As the Bible says, he did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all. 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will do that. He is with us. We can trust him. Let's pray.